God for grace. Praise God for the thing that we don't deserve, for forgiveness. And uh, thankful for each of you that just shared your stories, whether it was on paper or on video, just for being transparent, for being honest with us, that we've all been given something we don't deserve. And I love hearing forgiveness stories. I love hearing about people getting something that they don't deserve. And you think about it, that's where we're all at. We talked about last week uh, what grace is. It's that we get what we don't deserve. And none of us deserve God's grace. In fact, we've all sinned. We've all failed. We've all made mistakes. We've all blown it. Whatever phrase you want to use for that, the Bible says that we've all sinned. And we've all fallen short of God's glory. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. That's even Christians. That's even after you trust Jesus. And we've all blown it. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And then it tells us too in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, what that earns us, what we deserve. For the wages, what you earn, what you deserve, the wages of your failure, the wages of your sin, the wages of your mistakes, the wages of your blowing it, whatever you want to call it, the wages of your sin is death. What we earn, what we deserve is separation from God. What we deserve is death. What we deserve is guilt. It's condemnation. It's depression, it's anxiety, it's to be haunted forever by our sin. What we deserve is hell. But what we get is grace. This is but, and huge contrast here, and it's important. But the gift, what you're being given, that you don't deserve, what you've earned, we've already talked about, what you're being given is a gift. And the gift is eternal life, which is found in Christ Jesus. And wrapped up in that gift, what's found in Christ Jesus are so many things. It's given by grace, it's accepted by faith, and one of the elements of it is forgiveness. And I love hearing stories of forgiveness. This week, as I was thinking about forgiveness for this message, it just struck me with the fact that forgiveness is something that we all want. We all want to receive it. Whenever we sin against God, whenever we fall short of his perfect standard, whether it's a white lie or whether it's a murder, and wherever you fall on the spectrum in between, and most of us are swinging in that pendulum somewhere, that we want him to forgive us. And when you offend someone else, and you think about what forgiveness requires, it always requires an offended party and an offending party. And whenever we're the offending party, we want the offended party, whether it's God or whether it's another person, to forgive us. We all want forgiveness. But when we are the ones that have been offended, isn't that hard sometimes to give forgiveness? And see, you think about forgiveness, and it's this thing. It requires two ways. And sometimes we're on one end, sometimes we're on the other end. And we've been given this thing, this thing of forgiveness, this grace that we don't deserve. What an amazing thing, but can we give it? And I love hearing stories of people that receive it. I love hearing stories of people that give it as well. There's one story that sticks out to me in my spiritual journey. I actually read it a few years ago, but I read it again this week, and just getting ready for this message and mentally preparing. It's about a young lady named Jackie Hamill. And Jackie's story is that she went on a short-term mission trip with her church, kind of like how Southbridge will send people to Madagascar, send people um, to Canada, send people different places on short-term mission trips. And uh, her church sent her and 14 other people to the Philippines to do prison evangelism. And they went to this prison with some pretty tough criminals, some guilty of murder. Some were guerrilla warriors for a communist group and all kinds of folks that are there, a very hard type group. And the way those who tell the story about Jackie and her team talk about it is what happened was one night as they were sharing the gospel and sharing God's love after a service, she just sensed that God's love was penetrating the hearts of these inmates. And so she kind of lingered around and she was staying there just enjoying seeing God's presence and God getting through to some of these folks and while she was standing there just enjoying what God had done in this service, in the background there was some fighting that broke out and she could hear some gunshots and what took place was that the prisoners were rioting and they had overthrown the guards at this prison and they took all their weapons and took control of the prison and actually took Jackie and those 14 members of that team hostage for three days. And for three days, Jackie and another girl named Juliet, 16 years old, were raped repeatedly. 
And while she was in those dark moments, while she was being shamed, the way that it happened was that she was praying for her captors. And I hear that and I think, how in the world is she doing that? In that moment, in that, that time, giving forgiveness? And the way those folks that were on that trip talk about it is that during that time, she would lead the team in singing praises to God while they were held in their cells. And so they'd be singing these songs. And what happened was one of the captors, who's actually guilty of doing these things, stopped, dropped his weapon, and surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Because people, it's not normal to see something like this. On the third day, some soldiers came to the prison to overtake the prisoners who had taken control of it. And there was a gunfight that took place. And in the crossfire, Jackie was shot. And as she laid there dying, she had her hands up in the air and she was praying for the soldiers and for the captors and singing praises to God. And I hear about this gal that dies this way. I think, who can do that? How could you ever do that? And what happens was she was a girl that had been forgiven. And supernaturally, this isn't natural, supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of her, she's able to then extend what's been given to her. She's able to forgive as she's been forgiven, even in these terrible moments. And I think about us, we've been given this gift of forgiveness. Each one of us in some way has experienced the forgiveness that's been offered to us, maybe by another person, Lord willing, by God. But isn't it really difficult sometimes to give forgiveness? Some of you, you've got people to forgive. You, You maybe have somebody that offended you, perhaps even on the way into the service today. Someone took your cup of coffee or cut you off on the way to church or whatever it is. And some of you, it was on a grander scale. It could have been that somebody left some scars in your life, maybe some words they said that have scarred you, and maybe they don't even realize it, but you're holding this against them. Somebody didn't do something for you, or they weren't there, or there was abandonment, or there was abuse, or there's an affair, or there's something that happened to you, and there's this person you still haven't forgiven, and maybe their face even comes to your mind. And today we're going to talk about the grace to forgive If you have your Bibles, it's going to be Luke chapter 23, and I'll start reading in verse 32. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me there, and if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You can go to the connections table on the way out, or you can get one over here by the offering box, and uh, just because it's by the offering box doesn't mean you've got to put money in there. Bibles are free, Uh, so go ahead and grab one, and uh, we'd love for you to have a copy, because what can happen when you have your own copy of the Scriptures, you can see what's happening around the verses that we put in the screen, and we want you to be able to see that, and what we're looking at today in Luke chapter 23 is a central passage to all of Scripture. It's central to the gospel, it's central to the New Testament, it's central to the whole picture of God's story, it's central to all of human history. In fact, everything divides upon this event. What we're talking about today is an intense scene, it's the cross. And in the center of this story, what we see is forgiveness. And what's happening in this scene is that Jesus has just spent an intense night in prayer where there's been sweat, sweating drops of blood and, and just asking God to let this cup pass from him if there's any other way. He wishes there's another way, there's not another way. And you can imagine moments later what happens is he's betrayed by a friend with a kiss. And he's arrested and he's taken to the high priest's courtyard. And while he's in the high priest's courtyard, he looks across and he sees one of his closest friends in all of his life, Peter, say, I never knew that man. He's being abandoned. He's being put in isolation. He'd be forsaken by his father. He's taken to Pilate, who has the authority to kill the Jewish leaders don't have authority to do that. And Pilate says, this man's innocent. Sends him to Herod. Herod says, this man's innocent. He goes back to Pilate. He says, this man's innocent. But then a bloodthirsty crowd cries out, crucify him. So Pilate sentences him to be flogged and then taken for crucifixion. And the place he goes to for crucifixion is a place we hear sometimes called Calvary. That's Latin. Or Golgotha. That's Aramaic. And here in our passage today, that's where we join him. It's called the skull. 
Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And in the middle of this, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was written above him a sign which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. The irony and the mockery is that by not saving himself, he would save us. Repeatedly, here he is. He's mocked. He's beaten. He's abused. He's betrayed. He's in isolation. Eventually, he'll be murdered. Why? For you and for me. To give us a gift. An incredible gift, a costly gift, a personal gift, a gift that's offered to you freely because it cost him so much. And it's a great gift. And that's our first point today. We've been given a great gift. That gift, wrapped in the cross, encompasses forgiveness. We've been given a great gift. And you think about all the gifts that you've been given in your life. Birthday gifts, Christmas gifts. Surprise gifts, maybe you've gotten engaged, somebody gave you a gift at that moment, maybe you've had an anniversary, somebody's given you a gift, maybe you had a, a gift from someone you never expected, maybe a neighbor, maybe when you were in the hospital, whatever it is, you've got all these gifts given in your life. Can you think of the greatest gift that's been given to you in your life? Now, apart from any answers you might give for Sunday school, like no, no, nothing, I know every good gift comes from God, but imagine another person handed you a gift. What's the best gift you've ever been given by another person? And what is it that made that gift so special? Was it because it was so costly? I mean, maybe some of you were given like a car for a birthday or something like that. Or maybe somebody paid for your college or somebody, you know, bought you a house or whatever. I want to know your friends. But anyway, maybe somebody gave you some big thing. And what made it so special to you was that it was so expensive. It was a lavish gift. It was a costly gift. Or maybe when you think of the greatest gift that's ever been given to you, maybe it was words. Or maybe it was a card someone made for you. Or maybe it was something that wasn't necessarily so costly. It was just incredibly personal. Or you think about the things that make a great gift. Maybe it was something that was, in fact, special to you, but maybe not special to everyone. They wouldn't even understand. Maybe it, it, was a, it met a need in your life at a certain time. Maybe it was given at the right time. Or maybe this was a surprise. Or maybe that it was just at that moment this need that you had and because of the situation and you'd have to tell the whole story. And the gift that God gives us is all of those things. It's incredibly costly. It's very lavish. It's very personal, specifically for you, for your sins, for my sins, for us, given at just the right time to meet an incredible need. And that's what Luke paints the picture of, this gift wrapped in the cross. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 32, he paints the picture, and it's a picture of contrast, because here we have Jesus coming to the cross, an innocent man coming to the cross, and he's with two criminals. In fact, it's interesting, if you look at Matthew's account of these two criminals, in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 38, the word that's used for criminals there, it's robbers. You know, sometimes we talk about Jesus being crucified between two thieves, and the idea of the word is not that they were the thieves that like, you know, cat burglars, cutting glass, like in movies and suction cups and all that stuff. They would rob openly, and they would use violence. And so as they walk up, take what they want to take, and if you get in the way, you get hurt. 
in my reading this week, there are some commentators that actually believe that these guys were partners with Barabbas. You know Barabbas? See, the situation when Jesus was going to be crucified is that Pilate's the one who had the authority to do this, and there was a custom of the day that they would give one person, one criminal, a pardon. We talked about pardons last week. So you don't have to pay for your sins. It's you're given something you don't deserve. That's a pardon. Barabbas was a known murderer. And Pilate is the guy who said that Jesus was innocent. And so he thinks he's given the crowd a no-brainer. And he says, you know, it's the custom of the day. We're going to pardon a criminal. And so you can pardon this man who is innocent. I find no crime against him. Or Barabbas. He thinks he's presenting the crowd with like a no-brainer. And they start chanting for Barabbas, the no murderer. And now here's Jesus being crucified in his place between these two criminals that were probably partners with Barabbas, perhaps murderers themselves, definitely thieves, robbers that would do it with violence and openly. The kind of guys that when you see them on the nightly news, you think that guy deserves to die. He hurt innocent people. He took from innocent people. He did these things to innocent people, maybe even murdered innocent people. And then there's Jesus in between them. The way that Luke paints this story, it's like taking a diamond, putting it on black cloth. It's a story of contrast. Here's these two criminals. In fact, later, if you go on, if you have your own copy of the scriptures, you can even see one of those criminals actually says, we are dying justly. We deserve this because of our deeds. This man is innocent. There's no doubt about the innocence of Christ when you read Luke chapter 23. Pilate found him innocent. He sends him to Herod. Herod finds him innocent, goes back to Pilate. Pilate says he's innocent. When he's hanging on the cross, one of the criminals calls him innocent. After he dies, a centurion, one of the Roman soldiers, comes up and says, this man was innocent. He's a righteous man. So here's Jesus, who's innocent, dying a criminal's death. Why? It's for you and for me. This is an incredibly personal gift. He doesn't die for his crimes. He dies for ours because all have sinned. All fall short of God's perfect standard. And the only way for God to remain just and gracious is for someone to pay for those sins. He can't just overlook them because he's no longer just. Someone has to pay. And so Jesus, who's innocent, has to pay on the cross to remain, for God to remain just and for us to be forgiven and him to be gracious. All those things come together at the cross. It's central to everything and it's personal to you. It's like a story that Chuck Colson told one time at a Bible conference in Dallas. And he was talking about this prison camp and how these prisoners were actually used for manual labor. And what would happen is the guards would take them out and they'd do different things like digging. And one day they were out digging and they came back to the prison camp and the custom was that they were to line their shovels up along the wall and the guards would count the shovels. There were 20 men that day. And when they came back, the guards counted the shovels. There were only 19 shovels. And the guards don't know if somebody's trying to escape, if they're going to make a weapon, what's going to happen. So the the head guard says, whoever left their shovel, step forward. 20 men lined up and no one steps forward. The guard gets mad. And so what the guard says is, if someone doesn't step forward now, I will shoot 10 of you randomly. And one 19-year-old man steps forward. And they grab him. They take him a few paces off to the side. They put him on his knees. They shoot him and kill him as an example to the others. And they send the rest of the men back to their cells. And then they recount the shovels. And they miscounted the first time. There were actually 20 shovels. That man was innocent. But see, the difference between what Jesus did for us and what that man did for 10 of his friends is that man didn't know who those 10 men that he was dying for were. He didn't know which 10 men were going to be shot. They were going to be shot randomly. Jesus knew when he was on the cross, he was dying for you and he was dying for me. And he was dying for the people that were casting lots over his clothes. And he was dying for Pilate. And he was dying for those Jewish leaders. 
He was dying for all of those people. He was dying for all of the sin of all of humankind. He was dying for the person who put the nail up to his hand. It was incredibly personal. What a great gift. But not only was it personal, it was also costly. It cost him his life. I love the simplicity with which the gospel writers write. They talk about crucifixion, which is a horrific, a gruesome death. And look at how Luke describes it. Verse 32, he said, Two other men, both criminals, were also let out to be executed with them. So everyone knows what's going to happen. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. And that's it. That's all Luke says. It's a gruesome death. Maybe he doesn't get graphic because anyone who had seen it would know exactly what that meant. First century readers, second century readers, they would all have seen crucifixions, thousands of crucifixions. And I've shared with you before what it was like physically, the pain that you'd go through with the flogging and all that stuff, and, and to think about having nails pierce your hand, your wrists, your feet. Incredible pain. Not enough to kill you, though. Just enough to torment you while you hang there and die. You see, Romans had perfected crucifixion. They perfected it in such a way that you'd experience the most pain possible without dying. See, most people actually that died of crucifixion died of exhaustion, or they died of traumatic fever, or dehydration, or suffocation. That's how they actually died. Some people would hang there for weeks, and many of them would go insane. But if I talk to you about the physical pain, what I might miss is what actually happened on Jesus' cross. Because what it cost Jesus wasn't just physical pain. In fact, there's something that was about Jesus' cross that was so different than others that that's the one we talk about. See, even that day, two other men were crucified. Thousands of people experienced that physical pain. Those two criminals and thousands of others. The cost of the cross wasn't the physical pain. It was that Jesus' cross was unlike anything that had ever happened before. Because one man takes on the sins of the world. Can you imagine the weight of sin? Have you ever felt the weight of sin, your own sin before? Or, or they carry the burden with someone else, they tell you their sin? That's heavy. That's dark. No, matter, no wonder darkness covered the earth for hours during the middle of the day. This darkness that happened, this heaviness that happened. I, I had one day this week where I went home and I had heard about some different folks' sin and, and that's just part of you know, being a pastor. I get my own sin all day long and then other people's stuff and it was just heavy. And I read one person's story and, and bad stuff had happened to them and so it was other people's sin in their life and then somebody else with some, where they were at mentally and, and just the different things. I went home. Uh, I got in bed after we put the girls down early that night. It was 7.30 and I told my wife I was going to bed. Okay, I don't usually go to bed at 7.30. I don't know what you think, like, pastor do and all that kind of stuff, but I don't go to bed at 7.30, okay? I was just exhausted. And that was just a few people's sin. Here's Jesus on the cross. He has the weight of the sin of the world. That's every sin from Eden throughout human history. Think about that. That's every murder that ever took place or will take place. That's every terrorist act, every plane that's flown into a building, every bomb that's out in front of some building, all that stuff that's on him at that moment. Every lie that's ever told, every theft that ever happens, every rape that ever takes place, every child that's ever abused, every time that you think to yourself, no one will ever know, that was on him on the cross. Every pornographic website that gets visited, you know how often that happens? That's all on him on the cross. Every affair, every adulterous relationship, everything, all of it, it's all on him. Can you imagine that weight? It makes sense when he says words like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? None of us have ever experienced that. 
forsaken by his father, isolation, betrayal, abandonment, abuse, being mocked. And in the midst of that expensive cost, he says, verse 34, Father, forgive them. What? Father, forgive them. Who's them? Well, them are the guys that are underneath him at that moment gambling over his clothes. Them is the guy who put the nail up to his hand. Them is Pilate. Them is the Jewish leaders. Them is you and me. It's everyone who's ever been responsible for Jesus dying on the It's everyone for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages, what we deserve, is death and separation from God. But what he gives, he shows it right here, forgiveness. At the center of this gift, he shows forgiveness. Father, forgive them. Why? For, you can circle that word if you have a copy of the Scriptures. Here's the reason why. Because for, they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) I have a hard time with this verse. What do you mean they don't know what they're doing? They've crucified thousands of people. They know what they're doing. Maybe they don't know what they're doing and they're crucifying an innocent man. No, no, no. They know they're crucifying an innocent man. Pilate said he was innocent. Herod said he was innocent. There's a sign above his head that actually says he's innocent. In verse 38, the verse says this, that there's a sign above his head that says this is the king of the Jews. And the reason why that happens is because when someone was crucified, when they're executed, the custom was that whoever was executing the pilot, in this case, they would write out the crime of the criminal, and that person would have to wear it around their neck or it would be placed above their head. And remember, Pilate said that Jesus is innocent, but who forces Pilate's hand? It's the Jewish leaders. He's mocking them. There's no crime for this man. He is who he is. He's the king of the Jews, and we know he is the king of kings, not just the king of the Jews. He's being crucified for being innocent. They knew what they were doing. So how, how can this be said by Jesus? They don't know what they're doing. It's because they don't understand what they're truly doing. They know they're crucifying an innocent man. They know exactly how to do it. And they know exactly what they're doing. But they don't realize they're putting the weight of all of humankind's sin on one man. They don't realize they're killing God. It's the same as when you and I have made mistakes. Think about the biggest mistake you've ever made in your life. Did you know it was a mistake? Maybe, maybe not. Did you realize it would be the biggest mistake of your life? Probably not. Did you realize it would nail Jesus to the cross? Probably not in the moment. Did you realize how many people it might hurt? Probably not. Did you know what you were doing? Probably. Ignorance is not innocence, but they are ignorant. Ignorant to the implications of what they're doing. And so Jesus says, I offer them forgiveness. Father, give them forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't realize. Eve knew what she was doing when she took the fruit. Did she realize how it would impact all of humankind? No. Adam knew he was supposed to step in as the leader of his family and stop this. Did he realize that just through one man, sin would enter the world? And then through one man, sin would be taken care of on the cross? No. But it was. And it's a great gift. It's being offered to you. It's offered to each one of us. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, If you claim that you don't have any sins, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. In verse 9, it says this, that if you confess, if you'll get honest about your sin and say what it is, that's actually separating you from God. It's the thing that gives you what you deserve, the guilt, the condemnation, the separation, the depression, the anxiety, the haunting from the past, hell. If you'll confess it, then he is faithful and he's just. And we talked about how he remains just because of Jesus going to the cross. That he is just and then he will cleanse you. He will give you forgiveness. You know how you receive forgiveness? You place your trust in Jesus Christ that what he did on the cross for you was sufficient to give you forgiveness. What an incredible gift we've been given.
but it's also an incredible responsibility. We've been given a great gift, and that means we have a great gift to give. Because we've been given this great gift, we have, second point, a great gift to give. Implied in what Jesus did on the cross at that moment when he cried out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, was he was giving us an example and implied in that is that's the very thing we're supposed to do. Because think through the scriptures and what does Jesus say? If anyone, anyone, male, female, rich, poor, today, 2,000 years from now, if anyone wants to come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. What does it mean to follow him? It means to do what he would do. It means to say what he would say. It means to follow in his footsteps, follow his example, follow his words. In fact, he made it real clear when he told us all what his mission is. Anybody that follows Jesus, it's Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And so I'm going to say some pretty important words to you. Therefore, because of that, go, make disciples. That's learners of Jesus. And whenever someone becomes a learner of Jesus, baptize them. So everyone that wants to place their faith in Jesus should be baptized. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then teach them to obey everything I've taught you. And I'll be with you the whole time. But what did he teach us? He teaches us, love your enemies, pray for those who hurt you. That's clearly stated in one of the most famous sermons ever. He says how to pray. Remember he says, when you pray, here's how I want you to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. This very model of how to pray, he's teaching us how to forgive. And he goes on, and he says to do what he does, to say what he says, and then his followers start to follow it. There's a guy named Saul we talked about. He experiences grace. He knows forgiveness. You know what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32? That we're to be loving, we're to be compassionate, we're to forgive just as Christ forgave us, just as Christ and God forgave us. We're to be forgiving. We're to forgive the same way that Jesus forgave. Can anyone actually do that? Well, Jackie Hamill did it. That was in 1992. There was someone right at the beginning of the church who does something that seems a lot like what Jesus did. His name was Stephen. He's one of the first leaders. You find him in Acts chapter 7. He's being stoned to death. Crucifixion, stoning, these deaths are gruesome. And as he's being stoned to death, he cries out in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, Lord, I commit my spirit into your hands. And then verse 60, don't hold this against them. Don't give them what they deserve. Father, forgive them. Do they know what they're doing with a stone in their hand? Yeah. Do they realize they're going to spread the gospel through the known world? No idea. Do they realize they're killing an innocent man? Probably. Do they realize that it will be used as a catalyst in our lives today to forgive others? Probably no idea. He's doing exactly what Jesus said to do. In fact, Jesus says if you don't do this, it's evidence that you're not really forgiven. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 15, he says that if you don't, he won't. Look at it, it says, but if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. Don't miss this. This is important stuff. Okay, this might not be the most entertaining thing you've ever heard. This might not be the easiest thing you've ever heard. But this is something that when you leave today, you can't go to lunch and just go, man, that was tough, and then forget about it. You need to get this one. If you don't forgive other people, you won't be forgiven. Not my words, God's. What's he saying here? Is he saying that you must forgive in order to earn your forgiveness? Well, that seems contrary to all of the rest of Scripture, doesn't it? It's not at all what he's saying. What he's saying here is this. When you experience forgiveness, you will forgive. And forgiveness is an evidence of that. And here's the problem. Many people, and I believe throughout churches all across America today, believe they've been forgiven and they haven't. 
Because what they've bought into is they want the byproduct of forgiveness. Byproducts like freedom from guilt, freedom from sin. Don't have to think about their past anymore. It eases their conscience. And it's all done. There's no more condemnation. All that stuff is done. But they don't want what you really get when you receive the gift of forgiveness. You know what the gift of forgiveness is? What you get is God. See, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he gave himself. And a byproduct of receiving that, when you play, remember how you get forgiveness? You place your trust in the cross, and then you will live trusting in the cross. You will live trusting Christ, and so your life will evidence that. And you know what you get? Freedom from condemnation, freedom from guilt, the past is removed. Another byproduct is this, you will forgive others. If you haven't forgiven, it's evidenced by your unforgiveness. If you haven't been forgiven, you see it because you don't have a forgiving spirit. And you see this in people's lives today, too. Last week, you might remember, uh, we saw a story uh, of a couple before the message started, Kyle and Emily Yeager. And part of their story was they got pregnant before they were married. Well, in fact, while they were in high school. And you may remember that Emily, when she was sharing her story, uh, was talking about going before her parents and sharing that. And how it was just a realization that her, her sin actually impacted other people. And the heartbreak that her parents had in this and how hard that was, and then Kyle was talking about it too, and how difficult it was to go before her mom and dad, and he said, one of the miracles is, her dad didn't kill me, (laughs) and we all kind of laughed at that, and then I thought to myself, I've got four daughters, yeah, you'd kill them, I don't want to kill them, well, her dad goes to church here, he's actually a friend of mine, he's kind of buff too, but anyway, he, uh, I walked up to him afterwards, and we were talking, he told me I could share this, and we were talking about it, and I said, but you probably really wanted to kill him, didn't you, and he goes, you know, I, I never had that feeling, I said, why not? Because I'm thinking, I'd wanted to kill him. And he said, because I realize how much I've been forgiven. I was like, preacher, get this stuff, would you? You know, come on, you should know. Why am I asking these questions? But, but it's evidence that he gets it. He really gets forgiveness because he's been forgiven. You see, those of us who don't get forgiveness, we can't forgive because we don't really get forgiveness. Jesus talks about this in the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 18, Peter starts asking him questions about forgiveness. You know, Peter, I feel like that guy. Ah, I should have gotten this already. He starts asking Jesus these questions. And then Jesus says, well, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like, Peter. Imagine with me for a moment, there's a king. And he calls in, he decides he wants to settle accounts. He calls in somebody in his kingdom that owes him 10,000 talents. Now, we don't use the word for talents very often. And so let me put this into our vernacular. It's a word for people then that they would think that that's a made up number. Like no one even, no one owes that much money, 10,000 talents. It's like, think about our national debt. We've made up a number for it, trillion, right? It's gotten so big, we've got to come up with new numbers. And so trillion is a number. Imagine that when Jesus is telling this story, he says to Peter, there's a guy who owes a quazillion dollars. Okay, that's what it would sound like to Peter. And so he says to Peter, imagine there's a king and he calls in a guy who owes a quazillion dollars. And the king says, it's time for you to pay up. He says, I can't pay up. He says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sell you. We're going to sell your wife. We're going to sell your kids. And then the guy falls down on his knees and he starts to beg the king for more time. Just let me have more time so that I can make the money. The guy can never make a quazillion dollars. And the king knows that. And he says, you're forgiven. I wipe away your debt, all of it. Go. And the guy goes out. And can't you imagine how you would feel? You had a quazillion dollars hanging over your head going into that meeting, and now you owe zero. <laughs> That'd be like a little spring in your step, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be great? And he goes out, and you'd think he'd be on cloud nine, but then he sees a guy who owes him money, 300 denarii, which isn't chump change. Three months wages, 300 denarii. So it's like thousands of dollars, but nothing in comparison to a quazillion, right? And he goes up to the guy, and he grabs him by the collar, and he says, pay up. Give me my money. The guy can't. So he has him thrown in jail. 
can imagine when the king finds out about this, how he feels. In Jesus' own words, Matthew chapter 18, verse 32. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. He could never pay back all he owed. This is torture forever. This is how my heavenly father, Jesus' words, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Unless you forgive, you won't be forgiven because what you're evidencing by your lack of forgiveness is you don't understand forgiveness. It was offered to this guy. It was given out to this guy. He didn't really get it. So he didn't really get it. Do you give forgiveness? Do you have anyone that you need to forgive? Maybe simple stuff and you just haven't. It's like you're holding it over them and really it's controlling you. Or maybe it's big stuff and it's scars from a long time ago. Words, actions, all kinds of things. I've read some of your grace stories. There's terrible stuff in some of your grace stories. I hate that it's true. Abandonment, loneliness, sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, all that stuff. For me to say to you that I understand it, I don't understand all that. Jesus does. Not only was he with you going through it, he's been through it and more. Not just the physical pain. He knows knows physical abuse and he knows the mental anguish. He sweat drops of blood. If there's any other way, he's forsaken by his father. Isolation, abandonment, betrayal by every friend, verbal abuse. He knows all of that. And he tells you, forgive us, I would forgive. If you don't, he won't. You don't really get it. This is a warning. Make sure you get this. I know some of you do, reading your grace stories. There's one woman, I was reading her grace story, and she was talking about how her husband left her, was having an affair with a gal 31, younger, 31 years younger than her. And she talks about in her story how much she hated him and hated her and wanted other people to hate them. But then she also says that after about two years, and then overnight stuff, okay? And some of you may think, I could never, you don't understand what's happened to me, Jesus does. I could never do this because... And you, my story is different, and here's the exception. I'm not saying everything just clicks at one moment, and it's all done. Sometimes it's a process, and she was in process for two years. She got down on her knees, sort of praying to God. Not praying about her husband, not praying about that girl. And said, God, will you just show me if there's anything, you know, Psalm, 30, Psalm 139, show me if there's any offensive way. Show me if there's anything that I need to repent of. It's a normal part of the Christian life. And while she's down there on her knees, God starts to speak to her, and he shows her, you're no different than your husband. And you're no different than that girl. You need grace. And she forgives. And she's freed. She grasps grace. She's freed from the bitterness. She's freed from the anger. Another young lady at our church, she shared her story that she's the one who had the affair. She told me I could share with you even how it happened. And what happened with her story was they lived a great, you know, Christian life, went to church and smiles and a couple little kids and you know, good-looking couple and have it all together and the jobs, all that stuff. Everything looks great, but that's not how it was on the inside. There's emotional disconnect that's happening there and some isolation in the home. And Some guy started to pay attention to her. And at first she ignored him. But then she was drawn to that attention. And she had an affair. And this went on for months. And one day this conviction overcomes her. And she calls her husband up and says, you got to meet me at home. we got to talk. And she falls down on her knees and she starts to beg for forgiveness, just like that, that guy did in, in Matthew chapter 18. 
You can never repay this debt. I, I'm begging you for forgiveness. She told him everything that happened and let him ask questions and answer the questions. And do you know what he did? He forgave. And she said, I'll never forget his voice when he called his parents who had been praying for her for months. And he's crying on the phone and he says, she's home and she's here to stay. And there's been a time period from the time that moment happened until now. And she says, there's no backlash. There's no condemnation. There's no guilt. He's not bringing it back up, throwing it in my face. It's love. It's grace. It's forgiveness. How can he forgive that way? Because he's been forgiven. What about you? Have you received forgiveness? It's an incredible gift. It's a great gift. It's a costly gift. It's a personal gift. It's at just the right time for your need. It's for your sins. Whether it's a little white lie, whether it's murder, wherever it's at, it's your sins. It's personal to you. It's a great gift. Have you received it? If so, do you have anyone that you need to forgive? We've been given a great gift, but we have a great gift to give. And whenever we won't give that gift, what we're saying is this. Jesus' cross was not sufficient. Because when Jesus died, he paid for all of the sins. See, when we sing the song, Jesus paid it all, aren't we most of us singing, you paid all of my sins? But you know what? He paid not only all of my sins, he paid all the sins that have been done against me. And when we won't forgive, what we're saying is that what Jesus did on the cross was not sufficient to forgive those sins, so I've got to punish them more. And we're not trusting Christ. We're not trusting his cross. We're not trusting what he's done for us. We're saying that the cross is insufficient. Because those sins, they're going to get paid for. Either they got paid for by Jesus on the cross, or they will be paid for by the offender for all of eternity, separated from God in hell. They'll get what they deserve. They'll never be able to pay back the debt, and they'll be in constant torment. One of the two will happen, and you're not the one who decides. But you have a responsibility, not an option, a responsibility before God. This is a command, not a suggestion, to forgive, just as you've been forgiven. Have you been forgiven? And I'm sure you've been sinned against. Maybe it was words, maybe it was actions, maybe it was somebody didn't do what they were supposed to do. Maybe they weren't there for you, maybe they didn't follow through. What is it? Can you forgive? Father God, we come into your presence, so in need of the cross, so in need of a Savior. We are thankful for your gift that we don't deserve, eternal life, your Son, Jesus. We acknowledge our sin before you. Each of us, believer, non-believer, we acknowledge that we've sinned. It's no secret. And we need your grace. And Father, I pray for any that need to trust your Son, Jesus Christ, today that need to truly place their trust in the cross, that maybe even buying into the idea of byproducts of forgiveness, but don't truly know forgiveness. If you need to place your faith in Jesus, it's real simple. You admit your sin before him today. Just say, God, this is what I've done. And maybe you can name it or just acknowledge there's a bunch of it. And because of that, what you deserve is death. What you deserve is separation from him, but he gives you a gift, and you want to accept that gift today, then place your trust in the cross. You say, God, I believe that your son Jesus died on the cross, but it goes beyond just belief, but I want to place my trust in the cross and what Jesus did. That he didn't stay dead, that he rose again. And so he's offering me a gift, and that gift is real life. And I want that life. I want the life that Jesus is offering me today. Now, if you want that life, whether you're watching online, whether you're in Theater 9, Theater 14, wherever you're at, you're hearing these words, maybe on a radio, in a car somewhere, whatever it is, you just pray, pray a prayer like this, Father God, I admit my sin, and I need a Savior. I don't want to place G trust Jesus Christ to be my Savior. 
I want to receive your grace, what I don't deserve. I want to receive your forgiveness. I believe the cross is sufficient for me and for all who've sinned against me. And I surrender my life because your son Jesus surrendered his life for me. I want to receive that eternal life today. And Father, I pray for those of us that know you, but we still sin. We still need to come to the cross. We still need your forgiveness. And those that maybe walked into this room not in right relationship with you, but need to deal with sin, I pray we lay that down at the foot of the cross, come to you, confess our sins. And because of your faithfulness and your justice, that you'd cleanse us. Will you cleanse all in this room today, all that will hear these words today? And Father, for those of us who have people that we need to forgive, will you speak to our hearts? Will you tell us how to do that? Father God, will you tell us if that means an email, if that means a phone call, if that means taking a vacation to go somewhere, bringing somebody here, whatever that means, Father God, will you please speak to our hearts? God, will you overcome? Some people will think to themselves uh, that they can't reconcile the relationship because the person won't receive the forgiveness. We're not talking about reconciliation. We're talking about forgiveness, God. Will you have them forgive today? Please, God, give us a forgiving spirit. Make this church a church of grace. Make our community a church that, or a community that's impacted by people of grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.